Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your host, Oxygen Advantage founder, Patrick McKeown. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. This is going to be breathing's performance psychologist. Well, actually, it probably won't be so much breathing, but it's going to be all things of the mind. Myself and Jerry were giving a, a TEDx talk. It was going back maybe 2016, Jerry, and you were on first and I was on second. So that's when we first met, even though your name had come into, into my space many times before that. So you're you're very welcome. Um, and I suppose just to introduce yourself, you're an Irishman. You're living in, in Dublin. Yeah, I'm an Irish man originally from, from Galway, now living in Dublin, and we spent half the year in Portugal. So half the year in Dublin, half the year in Portugal. And um, yeah, I work, initially I was a performance psychologist working with professional sports teams, uh, Olympic athletes. And then when I looked at how the mind could be developed and how the brain could be developed, and then a critical point in my career was discovering that a lot of people get to the Olympic Games and they get sick. And by being in a number of Olympic villages and seeing how how busy the hospital was, and the question I started to ask was, why are so many fit people getting sick? And for too long, people were kind of saying, well, it's just bad luck, it's just bad timing, maybe they picked up some bacteria, people not washing their hands. And it wasn't until I started studying and started working with the lady that was leading the Chinese uh, team and we suddenly realize that immune system, the mind, the body connection. So I started bringing that back to my own teams. And we started having this incredible run of not just success, but like now there was far less illness, far less sickness. Um, and then after years and years of, of, of understanding that and, and, and digging deeper into the microbiome, the gut brain axis, the mind body connection and how your thoughts and emotions, you know, can change your immune system, can change your hormonal system. I kind of said, I have to take this message and, and bring it to the public because it's, it's so powerful, but unfortunately most of the public don't get it. So I've evolved from living in Galway to living in Dublin to living in Portugal. And I've evolved from being a sports psychologist to a person that's trying to bring this message of integrated health and well-being, um, where we look at the entire human being, where we look at the connection between the mind and the body, when we look at things um, where we can regulate our own immune system, our own nervous system. Um, so that's it's been a fascinating journey. I'm still only scratching the surface, Patrick. I'm reading your book. And as I said, yeah, sometimes I have to read the same page 10 times. There is so much out there that I'm I'm as hungry about this topic as I've ever mm. been. And I, there's so much more to learn. It's just incredible. But this is pretty amazing. Well, the first thing that is going on, I'm going to say it out loud. Okay, you're a Galway man, but you have a mayor jersey up in a big plaque behind you. So... <laughs> I'm a big man living in Galway. A great team. So one of my footballers one time ago. One of my greatest honors because I'm fascinated by them. Obviously, we didn't get an All Ireland. Um, you got very, very, very close. But a great. I've been lucky to work. I think with six teams. Five of them won an All Ireland, and one didn't. So may all oh. got away. There's always a chance. There's always a chance uh, I could come back out of retirement if I got the call from Mayo. So. Uh, 
I just think they're great. I, I, I you know, I, I, I love the style of football they play. They don't feel sorry for themselves. They don't moan. They don't give out. They just get on with it. And yeah. uh, I think there's there's a part of that we could we could all do it. And all learn from why why can't they get over the end line? Which is what we'd all love to see. But there's something about their spirit that needs to be admired. So uh, so yeah. that's there. And I'm very proud well, to totally. be involved with them. Totally, I would agree with you. Um, the gush mind body connection. So some people will be slightly aware of it. Some people may more so than others. So in other words, if we're eating crap food, it's going to affect our ability to focus and concentrate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, people might might know or might not know that we have a thing called the gut brain axis, and the gut brain axis is bidirectional communication between the gut up here, between the brain up here, and the gut. One time ago, we used to talk about the brain and the gut and the heart as if there were three independent centers. Mm. Then we started saying that the gut is the second brain and they work together. And now we've discovered that the, the heart has this incredible uh, system of fine nerves all around it, this network of fine nerves that is actually a brain of itself. So we now we know, now we talk about the three brains, the brain here, the brain there, the brain here. I've never really subscribed to that. It's one brain. A third of your brain is up here. A third of it is in your gut and a third of it is in your heart. They all have neurons. They all are capable of making decisions. And in fact, five times more information goes from the gut to the brain than the brain down. So even though I'm saying up here is 30%, it's probably more. So when now we look at the, the role of the gut, so a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, it comes down to very often a gut imbalance or a disturbance of the microbiome. Our immune system is in our gut. The more we look at the power of the gut, we realize it has an impact on everything. So, yes, we should be very aware that, you know, when we have a nervous thought, it creates butterflies in our stomach. So we, all, we, we, we know that stress and tension can create a knot in our stomach. But we also need to know the opposite is possible, an imbalance in the gut will send a message to the brain that can cause brain frog, uh, distraction, fear, anxiety. So what we need to learn is that we have one body and one mind. Both cannot be separated. They are not connected. They are the one. It, it is an interplay. And one has the ability to take the other in or out of a state of coherence. And that coherence is a physical coherence uh, in terms of chemistry and biology. And it's also a frequency, an electrical frequency. So our body is, is a one big energy field. And when the frequency of the brain up here goes out of whack, the heart goes out of whack. So what we're all looking for is a state of coherence, a state of whole body, whole mind thing. And uh, and I, I think that's what fascinates me. So yes, the gut and the brain cannot be separated. The function of one impacts the function of another. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and I doubt there's a whole lot of psychologists and psychotherapists and counsellors that are actually considering the gut in terms of mental health. Um, I've always kind of, we're all in our own little silos. I look at breathing for mm. mental health. I look at sleep quality, breathing, sleep in the mind. For me, there's that relationship. Um, so say, for example, you're a typical teenager and they're eating sugary stuffs. What, what do you think is the worst? Is it the sugar? It could be the worst to throw off the microbiome or is it could be the pesticides or what, what factor would you think would be? The, or is, is there is there one single factor or is there many? 
No factor. If you think of your microbiome, it is a balanced network. So it's almost like Amazon. It is a beautifully refined. And in that refined ecosystem, there is an intelligence. So as we eat food, you know, people will know that if you eat food first, you've never had before, you might feel a bit. But then you develop an awareness to it. You develop a, a physical a connection, a, a brain chem connection to it. What happens is we have learned food that nourishes the gut. We have the, the gut, uh, you know, and the, the, the ecosystem within the gut has to be uh, balanced, but it also has to have a rich diversity in it. But it has to have rich diversity of good stuff that it has a known intelligence, how to break it down, how to understand. What we have now is so much food that's been fast produced in a lab. And sometimes there's chemicals. If you read the ingredients in a bag of crisps or the ingredients in a so-called protein bar, you realize that there's stuff in there that didn't exist two or three years ago. So the body has no intelligence of it. So when this thing enters the gut, the gut says, I don't know what this is. And if it doesn't know what it is and has no recognition of it, then it's going to try to protect itself by, by fighting that. So all this stuff is put into the gut, but the gut can't deal with it because it has no intelligence of it. It has no awareness of it. And what we know now from a lot of highly processed food, be it with sugars or salt, is they're creating insulin spikes. And insulin spikes create fluctuations in our energy, in our mental capacity, in our mood. When you destabilize the gut, you destabilize everything. And there is all the evidence in the world out there right now is saying that the three biggest killers in the world, lack of exercise, unresolved stress, and processed food. So food for me... When you look at anything from depression to anxiety to IBS, you have to look at stress and food in the same thing. It is one of the same thing. The brain and the gut cannot be separated. So it's I would just look at how processed is my food, whether that's sugar or salt or all these uh, ingredients. Involved, different things. The yeah, stuff absolutely. that people are, are drinking in terms of. Um, so what you're saying is, really bring it dialed back to basics it needs to come out of the ground or it needs to come direct from an animal yeah you know there's a long expression if you have to peel it eat it if it comes out of a packet just beware of it you know we're now living but like even like chickens a lot of the chickens we eat i think six weeks old i mean that is not healthy it's not sustainable and the amount of life in the food you eat reflects the amount of life the food gives you we live in a world now where food is being produced far too fast and we're not eating in season. So we're eating strawberries in December. And there's a cost to all of this. There's a cost to this fast food. And I'm not just talking about fast food and coming out of a fast food chipper. Chickens, animals are being, I mean, I see I go home to the west of Ireland now and I see all these slatted houses and you pass them at three o'clock in the nighttime. They're all lit up and the cattle are eating because they're being force fed. The cattle are being tricked. The circadian rhythms of the cattle are being tricked. They think it's nighttime and they're being you know, tricked into this constant state of hunger, which means the body's in a constant state of stress, which means the body's in a constant state of cortisol. The blood systems, the meat, everything that we eat from then is is immersed in all of these, plus how we treat the animals. We've no doubt now, like America, we're moving towards this huge amount of, of hormones where a lot of the animals, we because size matters and bulk matters. And the, there's a huge amount of hormones in our meat. There's a huge amount of pesticides in our in, in our in, in our fruit. 
So we have this idea that we can grow the same food all year round and we can grow it fast and fast and fast and we can produce chicken and meat quicker, quicker, quicker. But there's a massive cost. And if you want to see what the cost is, just look at the hospitals and look at the numbers of diseases that are going up. So food can be your greatest medicine or your slowest poison. And food isn't meant to be just something that fills your stomach. It is meant to be something that gives you sustainable energy and healing. It is meant to be healing. It is meant to be anti-inflammatory. It is meant to be of a certain, of a certain constitution that adds to the healing of the body, allows cells to repair, allows inflammation to be moved out of the body, allows new you know, systems in the body to be developed. What a lot today is is counterintuitive. It's it's fast. It's it's pesticides. It's hormones, and we're wondering why when we eat it, either a we feel flat. Well, if there's no life in the food, it's not going to give you. And then we wonder why we feel weird after eating it, because it's totally unnatural. It's unnatural stuff. I watched a documentary. You know the guy who did Super Size Me was a Spurlock. Is his name? Uh he did one on chickens. Free range chickens. It's actually yeah. worth watching. It just came out. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix or Amazon. Yeah. But uh, you'd be shocked. Well, you you won't be shocked, but I was shocked. Yeah. Uh, so you're a you're a psychologist, but you're approaching it very much from the the bi-directional, both the mind and also from the gut. So one, we need to be eating healthy. Um somebody has a who is a racing mind. And I'm often intrigued with this because I fell into that category. I never considered I anxiety, never. Yeah. I felt it was a lot of the emphasis on achievement mm-hmm. um, and the drive to for society that we're never here, that we're always striving for something in the future. Mm-hmm. And getting through the Irish education system, I left school initially at 14. That'll just give you an example. I went back one year later, getting the leaving cert. I felt always stressed, always into university, stressed, in the corporate world, stressed. And so it's something that's very, very pervasive. When you approach somebody and they say that they've got a racing mind and they have difficulty quieting the mind, do you you would use a number of different strategies? What would those strategies be um, in terms of, and also the other thing, Jerry, is do you feel or do you see that this is increasing? You know, yeah. Firstly, I think you know I have a great mind to ask why. And my dad, uh, my dad used to build old engines and cars, and he used to buy old cars that were the engine was gone, and he'd buy it for nothing, and he'd fix it in ten minutes and sell it and make some money. And I remember often me that with him, and we buy a car for nothing, and mm. the guy. Oh, the engine's gone, the engine's gone, the engine blew and that, and it's it's worthless. My dad said, oh, don't worry, I'll take it. And my dad have it going in 20 minutes. And I said, Matt, how do you all fix it? Because the engine is blown. And my dad said, the engine is never blown. Because there's no such thing as an engine, Jerry. The engine is a term that, that de- describes a number of different things. So you have the pistons, the carburetor, the timing. And he said, yep. usually what happens is one of those pieces breaks and it stops the whole thing from working but if you can find the one piece that's broken and fix that one piece it all starts working again he said i don't think i've ever seen every part of every engine to blow and he made me really curious so my mind is gone 
is it really? So what is the mind? Is the mind in the brain? Is the brain outside the mind? Is the mind in the nervous system? I feel anxious, but what is anxious? And where do you feel it? Do you feel it in your gut? Do you feel it in your heart? I feel anxiety in my heart. My heart is racing. So something has speeded up the heart. So the heart is working perfectly. If the heart speeds up, it means it's working perfectly. But the heart is responding to something. So it made me for the first time, just like the engine, the brain, the good brain axis, the vagus nerve, the skin, the microbiome. I began to see the body as this incredible thing. And I realized that the brain is not the mind. And I realized that very often anxiety is simply a, a, a sympathetic dominant nervous system. So we have a nervous system that can be in a sympathetic or parasympathetic state. Sympathetic is when someone pulls a gun and shoves it in your face. In that split second, you need massive awareness, massive attention. You need high energy, high blood pressure, cortisol, adrenaline, and you need to fight or flight. And we need a sympathetic nervous system because that's life at times. It's unpredictable, it's uncertainty, and we're, we're faced with adversity. But we can only be in that state of chemical, electrical arousal for short periods. The other side of the nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. And when we're in the parasympathetic nervous system, all that energy that was gone from fighting or running the guy with the gun is now put back into your rest, digestion, your immune system switches off, your brain starts producing BDNF, your brain starts to redevelop and you're becoming healthier and stronger. There's not enough energy to fire both at the same time. So for every minute you're in the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, go, 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 heightened cortisol, heightened adrenaline, fast breathing rate, fast heart rate, sweaty palms. For every moment you're in that, your parasympathetic nervous system is switched off and your immune system is switched off. Your brain is not regenerating. You're not digesting your food. So when someone comes in to me and say, my heart is racing, I ask like my dad, why? What information is it receiving that's making it go fast? Because I will ask them, did it ever race before? And they say, yes. Did it slow down at some point? Yes, it did. And when it slowed down, were you okay again? Yes, I was. So there's nothing wrong with your heart. There's nothing wrong with your nervous system. And when you're nervous, like, I can't eat. And I said, did you ever feel like that before? Yes. And eventually when it passed, were you hungry again? Yes. There's nothing wrong with you. So what we have, Patrick, is this idea of we label and we medicate. We label it. Jerry has anxiety, but nobody explained to me what anxiety was. Nobody explained to me about the parasympathetic response. Nobody told me that my heart and my gut were responding to my thoughts. Nobody told me that your immune, your, your, your emotions, what shows up in your emotions, shows up in your immune system, in your hormonal system, and in your nervous system. So here was me from childhood trauma, suppressing it, denying it, telling myself, bottle up, get out of it, drive forward. No wonder my, my nervous system was shot. So I think we have to become really clever about understanding that your heart doesn't just race. Your nervous system doesn't just switch on and off. Your microbiome doesn't suddenly go out of whack. There is something that is moving the dials continuously in the brain, in the nervous system, in the immune system, in the hormonal system. And what we know now is nothing moves those dials more than your thoughts, more than your suppressed emotions. 
And we know now that our thoughts and emotions change our biology, they change our chemistry, they change our nervous system, they change our genes, epigenetics. You become your own your own genetic engineer. Now, when I was saying that 20 years ago, Patrick, I cannot tell you the criticism and the pushback and the kickback I got. But I'm, thankfully, the science is there now. You can't deny this anymore. You want to change your biology. You want to change your chemistry. You got to change. You begin to change your mind. You got to change your breathing. You got to change your diet. You got to get into cold water immersion, connection with nature. You got to release trauma. And it has to be multidimensional. The answer for me has never been in one place. And I've done therapy, cold water immersion, meditation, yoga, exercise, and I still do them all. And sometimes one is more powerful than the other. But we need to know that emotions are in the body. So you can't, as a psychologist, we're trained how to talk trauma out, which is nonsense because trauma is not held in the thinking brain. Trauma is emotion, and most of our emotions show up in our body as anxiety, as a racing heart, as sweating, as IBS, as a psychosomatic illness. So we have to move trauma not just out of the brain, but out of the body. So that's why, as a psychologist, we use exercise, we use boxing, dancing, we use breath work, we use cold water immersion, chanting. It is a multidisciplinary approach where we realign, reconstruct, and redevelop our entire anatomy. Yeah, this is fascinating stuff. Um, in terms of the cold water immersion, or say if somebody was doing breath holding, both are unpleasant. Yeah. How is it working then for the mind in terms of, are you getting somebody to do something unpleasant to teach them to be able to cope with difficult situations? Is that part of it? Or yeah, well, how, how do you think? Has, you know, has a number of factors. So one, it can be yeah. great recovery, it can move lactic acid. Um, we know now that the more we look at, 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 at sea swimming and, and, and the incredible health benefits of that. But for me, what it is, Patrick, is let's say a cold shower is very simple. You hit the shower. Your natural rea reaction is get out of here, tighten mm. up. And that is your parasympathetic nervous system. And people think at that moment, which I had no choice but to respond like that because the water was cold. But that is the, that is the gift. We have a choice in all of this. So as the cold water hits me, the first thing I try to do is take a few deep breaths. Now I mm. change the stories. Instead of saying, oh, shit, this water, I don't like it. I'm saying this water is refreshing. This water is making me come alive. And the more I mm. change my breath, and the more I change my stories, and then I might start to sing. And now my body is responding to the fact that I'm singing. So I'm saying, well, this water mustn't be that threatening. He's breathing his regulators. Mm. His nervous system is seems to be okay. And he's actually thinking of his two young kids and releasing oxytocin. So this water is no longer a threat. So what you do is you create emotional resilience. Mm -hmm. Because very often when we're in a heightened state of fear, we become conditioned reflexes. So we encounter stimulus, so we encounter adversity, and we instantly react. But with all the clients I work with, what we have to do is create this gap between stimulus and response. And, and that is a great line from Viktor Frankl. 
we can't control what happens to us in life. Sometimes we're hit with adversity. We're hit with a stimulus that is terrifying. We run into Crow Park and the noise is deafening. And either you're consumed by that and your biology, your chemistry, your immune system is responding to your environment or it's responding to you. So what I try to do is put people into uncomfortable environments mm. and get them to become comfortable through their breath, through their stories, through what they think about. They become comfortable. And that's amazing. After a couple of seconds, or sometimes in the shower, I just start to jog slowly in the shower and I start pretending boxing and I'm starting to laughing at myself. Mm. And within 30 seconds of this terrible water that I couldn't bear, and I was like, I can't feel the water because I'm responding to something else. I'm responding to my mind. And my mind feels safe. It feels balanced. It has reframed the water. And I am creating that gap between stimulus and response. The water is just water. The water is just water. It's not going to kill me. I'm not going to die. My response to the water is either where my suffering or my freedom begins. And, and it's reframing. Um, so I can just kind of imagine it this way. Okay, there's something that's unpleasant. And you're surrendering to it. Mm. And even though you're surrendering to this one thing that's unpleasant, by by doing this, you're also training the brain that if there's other adverse situations that happen that day, you're more resilient. So it's not just that you're reframing it according to the cold shower, but oh. you're training yourself to be able to adapt to if if something happens that day that you're better able to cope. It's resistance. And in my new book, I, I talk a lot about emotional freedom. And there's no doubt that life creates pain. We've all had pain. Patrick, you've had pain mm, in your life. Had pain in life. Uh, you know, people lose their jobs. We both run our, our own business, Patrick. You tell me that's easy all the time. It can be terrifying. No, it's, it's, yeah. So emotions come and go. Adversity comes. And unfortunately, people lose, lose loved ones. Their children get sick. I am the first person to say it that life can be painful. Mm. But there is a difference in pain and suffering. Pain is the cold water. Suffering is my approach, my reaction to it. And sometimes in life, when we're hit with adversity, as tough, as difficult as it is, we either make a decision that that adversity will define us for the rest of our lives or it won't. And Viktor Frankl, who was a concentration camp victim and probably experienced the most horrendous adversity that anyone could and pain, eventually made the decision. And he said that every one of us has often the right to be angry and bitter, but we also have the freedom not to be. I don't live in a perfect world. I make mistakes. Things go wrong in my life. There's often adversity in my life but I'm never defined by it. And it's like a team in Crow Park, 10 minutes to go, they're six points down. If you focus on the scoreboard, if you focus on the time, if you focus on your opposition, if you focus on the last time you were there, then that's what's going to happen. Your future will be a chemical, a biological, and a psychological reprint of the past. Now you're suffering. But in that moment, which I did with a, a team called Belly Gunner, who fell behind at the last minute of an Iron Final. You take a deep breath, and you say, the game is still on. All we got to do is win the next ball. And when I take that ball, I'm going to take a deep breath. 
And moment by moment by moment, we're going to focus on this thing called WIN, what's important now. So my work I do isn't about saying to people, if you meditate, your life becomes easier and all your challenges go away. What I say is the opposite. I can't make your life easier. I can't make your challenges go away, but I can make you stronger. I can make you more resilient. I can make you believe in yourself more. I can make your microbiome, your your immune system, your nervous system, your brain, your heart work in a state of powerful coherence. So if your life isn't getting any easier, then we got to get stronger. And I think that is what I love. I love that power inside of us. It's like, that's why I love sport. I used to box and, and I was getting beaten all the time and I was physically fit and strong. Why am I getting beaten all the time? Because I didn't have the composure. Nobody was training my brain. And I realized that the biggest opponent I ever felt experienced was myself. And I think for many of us, we're too hard on ourselves. We push ourselves too hard. We've dysfunctional belief systems. We've unresolved trauma from childhood. And we're just beating ourselves up all the time. And we don't have any freedom. We're constantly trying to please. We're trying to be what other people want us to be. We're trying to be successful in the world's eye. We're trying to be better than my dad. I'm trying to, we're trying to, we're attached to everything. And the moment your happiness or your freedom is attached to something other than you, then you're owned by that person. You're owned by that thing. You have no freedom. But when you face an adverse situation and your first reaction is to breathe and to go inside and ask in this moment, who am I? What are my values? What do I stand for? Can I bring myself into a state of regulation? I think that's a really powerful way to live your life. So I've never once said to people, oh, you meditate and do this work and your life gets easier. Like, life doesn't get easier. And I don't sit around waiting for life to get easier. I make myself stronger, calmer, more resilient, with more freedom. And suddenly when you start to work on yourself, and you start to become a better person and you care less about the outcome, suddenly the business starts to take off and the book starts to sell. And it's like, God, this is weird. It's like the more freer I become, the more I achieve. Well, isn't that like a golfer? If a golfer walks out in a team and is absolutely terrified of missing the shot, he's going to miss the shot. So sometimes what I always say is the right person with the right process never has to worry about the outcome. If you're too caught up in the outcome in life, if you're too caught up in what other people think, if you're too caught up in your past, if you're too caught up in your traumas, you'll be defined by them all your life. And you'll never really get to witness who you could have been. Yeah, the process is... Uh, so what you're saying is, if, you're, if your attention is totally focused on something else, you're not going to have the attention on the task at hand. It's like the guy that's playing the round of golf he makes he makes a mess of the first hole, but he carries that psychology with him to the second, third, fourth, and makes a mess of every hole thereafter. Um. So by focusing on the process, as he's walking from the first hole to the second hole, is to be able to put that thinking mind aside, mm. to bring his attention onto the breath, and it's almost to kind of approach the second hole with a with a sense of playfulness that you're taking the pressure off is another pretend that you're giving a shit. You know, you, you have somebody that you don't like and you absolutely, yeah, pretend that I'm giving a shit so that the other person is happy, but at the same time, you're not putting pressure on yourself. Um, that focusing on the process, though, well, 
I don't listen. I totally get it. I think it's great. But isn't it just a pity it's not taught in the likes of schools? Because I know when I went through the education system, you know, you're constantly striving to get the result. It's all about the result, the result, the result. And there's nothing on having your attention on what you're doing. Forget about the result. As you say, the result looks after itself if you focus on the process. Yeah. I remember all in my school life, and I was always because I was an anxious child, and I thought that I was I was pretty useless, and I thought that my dad wasn't proud of me and that. So I always needed external achievements to try fill that hole of. So I, I I had to be the best at everything. I had to be the best student. And not be the best student. I had to have the right answers. And I used to become obsessed, not not with the learning process, but with the getting right process. So I always wanted an answer, an answer, an answer. And as long as you had the right answer, it was easy. So I became this incredible way of memorizing stuff. I didn't really need to understand it. I didn't really, really need to care about it. I just needed to memorize it. Flew through my leaving cert without even, I had zero interest in any subjects I was doing, but I was just playing the game. But then I started going to studying psychology and I decided to take up a degree in philosophy. So I said, God, this could be interesting. So I started taking some classes and the very first one delivered by a lady called Ann Power, who's an amazing uh, PhD in philosophy, but she's also one of the chief justices of the European Union. She's an amazing lady. So she starts talking about philosophy and questions. And I'm like, right, Jerry, you need to get a first class honours in this stuff. Like, and quit the nonsense here. What's this bullshit? Just tell me what the answer is. Like, what is the answer? And then she was talking about philosophy, the philosophy of existence. I'm like, I don't care about philosophy, and Which is the right answer? And then she was saying, this guy believed this and this guy believed that. And I'm like, I don't care, Anne. Just tell me who I need to remember so I can write it down. And she kind of knew I was getting agitated. And I was like, this subject's a great load of waffle of all time. Like, what is the right answer? Which one of them was right? Which was wrong? So eventually, she could see me in front. I was getting really frustrated. Like, this is such a stupid subject. How am I meant to win at this bloody thing? And I'll never forget, and if anybody was in that class with me, you might remember And Sometimes people from that class to listen to these podcasts and say, geez, I remember that. But at the end of her very first philosophy lecture, she gives an essay. And the title of the essay, I'll never forget it. The title of the essay was, What in the last analysis is everything? What? <laughs> and I'm like, well, how am I going to get an A in this? Like, what is she asking me? So I put my hand up. I said, you know, what, what exactly are you asking me? Like, what, what, what I was asking her, what book, what paragraph, what chapter? Just give me the answer. She said, well, what do you think I'm asking you? And she said, I said, I think you're asking what's the meaning of life. And she said, well, I, I am. And I said, but how am I meant to know what the meaning of life is? And then she said, this changed everything. She said, but surely you know the meaning of your life. And for the first time in all my education, eight years in national school, six years in secondary school, 14 years of education, the first time someone said to me, what do you think? Who are you? What are your values? And I went on this incredible journey through philosophy and understanding that there is no objective meaning in life. What's the meaning of life? It's a stupid question. What is the meaning that you bring to life is a better question. There is really no objective truth out there, but subjective. We live in a subjective reality. And I was 21 years old. And this lady looked me in the eye and said, you tell me what your life is about. I hadn't a clue. My life is about getting A's. 
so I don't know why. It's about pleasing my dad. It's about racing and chasing towards something so I can have a house and car to prove what to who, I don't know. I really went home that night, sitting eating my dinner, and it was the first time I realized I've never actually taken responsibility for my own life. Well, what, what dreams am I chasing? Why am I even doing this course? Why do I worry so much about winning and losing? And from that day on, I decided I was going to live life on my terms. And power changed my life in that one question. And I now realize that it's not about rushing towards the end. I want to be Olympic champion. I will always ask people, why? I want to be a billionaire. Why? I want to have the biggest breathing business in the world. Why? I want to climb Everest. Why? What are you hoping to find up there? I want to run a marathon. Why? What are you hoping to find at the end? And we suddenly realize that we're chasing all these things that we don't even know why. So a bit like my dad, when he looks at the car, he asks incredible questions. Before you chase anything, before you go after anything, before you do anything, ask why. Why would I do this? Why would I put my time and energy into this? Why is this so important to me? Who gave me this dream? Who gave me this idea? So the work I do with people is about the soul as much as the biology and the chemistry and the nervous system, because the soul is who you are. There's never been another part of McKeown with your dreams and your ambitions and how you managed to set up this incredible center in Connemara and you're traveling the world as this leading. How the hell did you do that? But something in you, something in you brought you to this point. How, why am I here? I can't do what you're doing. You can't do what I'm doing. And you work, you know, with, with incredible artists, as you said. And I'm sure when you see them perform, there's an energy, there's an electricity. Their soul is alive. So now when we look at the personhood, if you suppress your dreams, if you suppress your soul, if you suppress your identity, you're also suppressing your immune system. So mind, body, soul. But for too bloody long, we forgot about the soul. You get one shot at life. Are you living it on your terms? What goals are you chasing? Why are you chasing those? When you were eight years old, what did you dream of working at? Are you working at that now? Who talked you out of it? Who has built the stories in your head? And who has, who has made the things that are important to, important to you? So with every person I work with, someone presents with anxiety, I don't treat the anxiety. I treat the person that is anxious. And that person, no two of my clients are the same. So what methods do you use, Jerry, to treat anxiety? It depends on the person. Because the cause and the expression is totally different. The terminology is the same. You don't treat symptoms. You don't treat conditions. You heal human beings. And part of healing human beings is to ignite the soul, their passion, their drive their subjective understanding of life, their ability to question, their ability to learn, freedom and autonomy and meaning are not in the outside world. Freedom, autonomy and meaning are something that we have to give ourselves from the inside out. Freedom, autonomy and meaning. Um, you said you came across the, that question when you were 21 years of age, just plenty of people in their 50s, 60s, and they've never came across that question. One thing made me think about it when we grow up in a village, as I grew up, and probably as you grew up, we're very held back by the village because we act according to 
the perception of the individuals have of us in that village. How do we, where would you start with this? Do you break free from your, your environment that you're in? Do you, like, to get that autonomy, how do you get autonomy? It's like if you were in a job and your boss doesn't think much of you and you say, okay, out of here, I'm gone. And then I go into a new place and they don't have this preconceived idea of you. You can start afresh. Um, where would you say, say a 30-year-old or any age is listening to this, values, what are values? I'm just looking for some practical tools. How do we get to know ourselves? What the meaning of us is? And to understand that we are social beings, and when human beings inherited the earth, it was full of uh, you know, monstrous uh, giant animals. So the best way we had to survive was in a group, in a tribe. So we have a natural predisposition to be part of a tribe, to be part of a community. That's why if somebody was in a tribe and they could no longer hunt or they could not no longer be purposeful to the tribe, they got left behind and probably eaten. So people, in order to stay in a tribe, would mask injury. They would they would not want to be vulnerable in case they left. So deep within the human psyche is an unwillingness to appear vulnerable in case the tribe leaves us behind. But then there's also a defense mechanism whereby we place being accepted by a tribe almost more than self-expression. And our initial tribe is, is our family. And whether we like it or not, untangling the dynamics of a family are the greatest work we'll ever do. Because mm. the ages of zero and eight, our brain works on theta brainwaves. Theta brainwave, we can measure the very specific brainwave, and it's literally downloading. So we learn extremely fast. It's like meditation. Problem with theta brainwave is there's no thinking brain engaged. So you're not filtering, you're not analyzing, you're literally believing everything. So, so many of our unconscious programs are in place by the time we're eight years old. Then we have this huge need for attachment, and the attachment is to feel loved. And our attachment in the brain has certain centers in the brain totally dedicated to attachment. So we will manipulate people and environments in order to feel attachment. And we will be who people want us to be. We will say what they want us to say. We will do, we will regulate our own self so that it gets accepted. And being accepted social acceptance becomes more important than expression. And then finally, when we live in a house whereby there might have been tension or stress, a child between the ages of zero and eight does not have the ability to regulate their own emotions. And I hear so many sleep coaches nowadays that you put the child in the cot, you let them cry, and eventually they learn to regulate their emotions. That is horse manure. A child does not know how to regulate their emotions. So what they do is they get suppressed or they get fatigued or they get to a point where they realize I'm not being heard and not be seen. I give up. And the child lies in the cot quietly because they have lost their voice. Emotional regulation is when we live in an environment in which emotions can be regulated healthily by our family or our parents. And we learn that because we don't have that capability. So we're looking for attachment, but we're also looking for emotional regulation. Now, if we live in a house where, let's say, your mom or your dad didn't possess that and they were coming angry or drunk or shouting, or then they couldn't hit with emotional regulation. And not only could we not learn it, but our 
this regulation was heightened because we're walking on eggshells. Terrified what mood my dad's going to come in. Is he going to fire, fly, fire something at me? What's my mother going to say? Or the tension between parents. So much of a child's anxiety has nothing to do with the child. It has to do with the environment in which the house. It has to do with the relationship between parents. So people say to me at times, um, when you work with my child, they're very anxious. And I say, perfect, yeah. But the first plan is I'll work with you for six to eight weeks. And then I'll work with you and your husband for six weeks. Because I want to figure out what's going on here. Because the child's nervous system is responding to something. And it's either responding to something in themselves or responding to something. So think of a seed. If you plant a seed and the seed doesn't grow, very few people dig up the seed and start looking at the seed. We examine the, the soil, the environment. So we have to go back and ask, at what point did my need for attachment mean that I suppressed my own personality? At what point did someone tell me, don't shout like that, don't cry like that, don't speak like that in this house? And every time we expressed our true self, it was knocked down. Why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you? Why are you doing that nonsense? Focus on your homework instead. Why do you want to be playing football? Do your homework. That's not important. Every time we expressed ourselves, we were knocked down and told to conform. So we grow up then with this belief that there is something wrong with our truest expression, that there is something wrong with who I am. And the greatest way that I can get accepted by society is to show less of who I really am and to show more of what gets accepted. Mm. And that is the suppression of the personhood. Our soul is being suppressed. And we work in a corporate organization that we hate, doing a job that we never dreamed about, to pay for a house that we couldn't care less about, to keep people happy that we don't even know what we're doing. So it's untangling all of those parties. But the first step is go back to when you're eight years old. What was happening in your house? What was the emotional regulation levels like in your house? What was your relationship with your mom or your dad? Particularly if you're a male, what was your relationship with your dad? Did you feel enough? Did you feel loved? Did you feel he was proud of you? And a lot of our sense of being lost and a sense of something is missing and a sense of anxiety of children goes back to those basic attachment needs not never being filled between the ages of zero and eight. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Totally, yeah. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, Jesus, it's really deep stuff, but I think it's great. And I think a lot of people are going to resonate with it um, because you've been able to simplify it as well, which, which is so good. I'm just conscious of time, Jerry. Um, your, your new book is coming out. It's called The Freedom Within, and that's coming out in November 2023. And you've also a previous book called Awaken the Power Within. You seem to like the word within. Uh, so people will get that. I know they're available on Amazon. And how else can people find a little bit about your work? Like, I, to be honest with you, I've interviewed a number of people in psychotherapy before, quite a few. And I'm not going to say this is the better one. But I think there's stuff that's in here that has been really, really intriguing. And I think people are going to get a lot out of it. Um, so well done. That was a great conversation. For Thank people you. to hear a bit more about you and your work. 
Um, I'm Jerry, uh, Jerry Hussey. So my Instagram, I think, is Jerry underscore Hussey or the soul coach. They call me because I'm fascinated by the soul and, and identity and why we are who we are. Uh, my wife is a pharmacist who spent 10 years training as a pharmacist and then 10 years in, in community pharmacist and had to walk away because she said, we're treating the wrong thing. We're not addressing med- lifestyle. We're not addressing suppressed anger. We're not suppressing. And she has become an incredible mind in everything we spoke about. So the two of us have a company called Soul Space, and it is looking at everything we've talked about. So soulspace.ie is our website. And we have an Instagram page called Soul Space as well. And we run events. We run one-day events. We run retreats. We run um, – and my, my, this is my life mission. And this is my, my life mission as a child who grew up highly, ang- highly anxious. Two suicide attempts by the time I was 14. Went from doctor to doctor to doctor. Nobody could tell me what was wrong. And eventually one pediatrician said to my mother, if you want my honest opinion, he's making this up so he doesn't have to go to school. Yes. The moment in my life at 14, I knew my mission. I knew my why. I knew what I was here to do. Because for me, there's so many children and people out there who are desperately looking for an answer. And unfortunately, very often the answer is in, 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 in medicine. There is a role for medicine. And some medicine is life-giving and life-changing. And I've always supported and promoted that. But sometimes the medical is, is not enough because... If the root cause is psychological or emotional or it's a gut imbalance or it's a nervous system imbalance, it's a breathing imbalance, you can't chemically make yourself healthy. So I'm not saying chemicals don't work. I'm not saying medicine doesn't work. I'm saying, but it has to be multidisciplinary. And it has to look at trauma. It has to look at suppression of the identity. It has to look at unresolved emotions. It has to look at how we're moving emotion physically out of the body. It has to look at the blood and, 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 and the genetics and how our mind, our body, emotions changes all of those. So all, all I'm trying to do is share this message with the world. I don't believe in binary thinking. I don't believe that the answer is all here or all there. I don't think it's all in Western medicine. I don't think it's all in West. What I believe is an integrated conversation where everybody respects each other. When medical doctors are working with psychologists, nutritionists, breathing experts, and we all have this one, one agenda. How do we create a holistic approach to human health and wellness that stops this ever-increasing sickness in the world? How do we give people a real chance of health and happiness? How do we get them to utilize the power of the natural systems within the human body? So... You know, there's a place for everything. And and I said, I'm only at the beginning of my journey. I still think there's so much more I need to know. I'm blown away. As I said, I'm reading your book. I'm just blown away by it. I'm reading books on good diversity. I'm blown away by them. I'm listening to quantum physics, try to explain the resonance of the human being and the resonance of the cells in the body and the electrical frequency that's moving around the body and what happens when that gets suppressed. And I don't think the answer is in any one of these things. But the more we at least, you you mentioned a lovely word about curiosity and playfulness. Be curious about who you are. Be curious about why your heart is racing. Be curious about why there's a knot in your stomach. Be curious about the environment in which you grew up. Be curious about the words you use, the stories you tell yourself. 
knowing that the only person that can perpetuate a thought or an emotion in you is you. So be curious, be open, don't be dismissive, and release all agendas other than the agenda of increasing health and happiness. Wow. Jerry, it's a pleasure. And uh, thanks so much for that. And I would really encourage people, you get a great insight there is um, to check out Jerry's books, especially those of you who are international. A lot of our people are overseas, Jerry, um, but certainly your books. And do you have any online courses, by the way, that are... We have a number on the website you can look at. We're about to create some new ones as well. So, um, right. yeah, they're all there on, on SoulSpace.ie, we'll, we'll see. So, and a bit like yourself, Patrick, you know, this the overnight success. I'm 20, 25 years at this. So we're trying to upscale the business to meet the demand now, where for a long time ago, people didn't want to hear this. and They didn't. Yeah. So, you know, we've so much stuff coming online over the next year or two, but... But listen, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. I'm totally blown away by your work and the success that you have as a West of Ireland man. I think it's incredible. I think your book is incredible. And I said to you before we even came on air, I would love to do more work on this with all my clients because I think we've a lot of the stuff fairly right. One of the areas we haven't right, Patrick, is, 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 is breathing. We're okay. But the more I read your books and the more I do more research is the more I realize we're definitely missing a trick. And I'm not just saying that. If I thought your book was, was <laughs> it's mind-blown and it has changed my my total understanding of it. And I think it's people like yourself, Patrick, that do things quietly. You're not here to offend anyone. You're not here to upset anyone. You're just here to bring amazing signs. So you inspire me and, and and the fact that you're from the West of Ireland gives me a little bit of a kick and say, well, if he can do it, you can do it. So continue to do your, your incredible work. It's amazing. Great. Well, we're all doing the best we can do, Jerry. Let's, uh, I'm going to bring it to a close and thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Oxygen Advantage podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and maybe take the time to leave us a review. The Oxygen Advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers.